Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Built to Win. I'm your host, Victoria Erdley, and today we're joined by the infamous Chase Martin. So Chase, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me on, uh, Victoria. I'm very excited to talk a little bit about all this stuff we're working on. But um, yeah, I'm the Legal Affairs Director at the Foundation for Government Accountability. I've been here for a few years now and worked in the conservative space for over a decade now, working to fight back using legal processes and, and a lot of policy work. Well, we are so happy to have you here as our Legal Affairs Director. And you have worked for a variety of people and been all across the place. We always internally make a joke like he's been traveling everywhere across the country <laughs> and living in tons of different places because of COVID. I mean, why not? Why not get out of the swamp? Right, Chase? Right. No, that's the play right there is to just get out of the swamp. Once Biden was elected, it became very untenable to be a, one of the eight conservatives left in Washington, D.C. <laughs> so good time to grab the dog and hit the road. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I believe you're joining us now from Texas. Am I right? I am joining okay. from the great state of Texas. So today we're going to talk a little bit about a specific project that you're leading here at FGA, and it's called Biden Bully. So tell me what's behind the project, what's behind the concept? Sure. The Biden Bully project is really an effort to stand up to the Biden administration bullying states and trying to get them to do things outside of the purview of the Biden administration's legal authority. So one of the things we're really focusing on is pushing back against this idea of governance by decree. Biden comes out of eight years of an Obama administration that was very skilled and successful at telling states what to do and expecting that whenever they issued an edict, the states would follow. So uh, I have quite a background from working in Maine of standing up to Biden. And a lot of our team has a lot of opportunities and experience in standing up to federal overreach. So we're excited to have the Biden Bully Project and our website's www.bidenbully.com. Yeah, and be sure to check that out. There's a lot of great stuff on there. And we regularly are updating it on not only some of the most recent actions from the Biden administration, but also some of the ways that states have been fighting back. So Chase, we're going to get into a little bit about your personal experience in Maine and at other places with how you've dealt with this before. Great. But you were saying that, you know, the administration kind of forces compliance from states like, and they did this during the Obama administration. But what are some of the ways that they're doing that? I mean, there has to be specific tactics yeah. in play. And, and what does that look like? Yeah, the bullying tactics are pretty well thought out and crafted to have maximum effect. They know exactly what they're doing. But I'll, I'll walk through a few of them and just give you some highlights. So the, one of the first things they like to do are these spontaneous visits okay. by important sounding federal bureaucrats no one has ever heard of and no one has ever voted for them. Uh, no one even knows these people exist except for the state agencies that receive funding from them and guidance. So they, every letter has this innocuous sounding bureaucrat title letterhead on it. Yeah. And it goes to these state people and they just expect that if that person shows up, it's like uh, a royal visit. You know, you have to be very formal and treat them like they're very special. So it's kind of like, you know, when I was in high school and I had this job and at like a food service place and the inspector would randomly come in and, and check all these boxes and make sure you 
had all the things to do for an inspection. Is it kind of like that? It kind of puts you on your toes and it's completely, in, in many ways, unwarranted, almost like a surprise. Yeah, there's a lot of surprise that goes into it. The higher echelon really likes to give you advance notice so that you can roll out the red carpet. But mm, the lower mm-hmm. mid-management level, they'll just show up so that they can look good to their boss with their surprise visit report. Mm-hmm. So those are the folks you got to be really careful of. They, they're they really more career-driven and they work in these toxic environments anyways. So yeah. they're doing everything they can to just score points. And one of the ways they can score points is by just showing up unannounced and you know trying to find something wrong when there's nothing wrong going on. Okay, so these impromptu visits is kind of like one of those tactics that the administration will use to kind of push states into compliance. What else are they doing? So there's this really wonky and, I, I, you know, I'm a nerd, so I'm allowed to say very nerdy process <laughs> that's, uh, that goes into creating formal rules. So the rulemaking process that happens down in D.C., generally these agencies, these federal agencies, craft a, a new way to interpret a federal law. And they have to go through some checks and balances down in D.C. to get those rules through. Now, usually if you're, you know, if you're myself, you're a political appointee, or you're just trying to help uh, make sure you have a good food stamp program in somewhere like Maine, you're very focused. And then suddenly you get a letter saying, oh, there's a whole new way we're going to interpret this law and you have to follow or else. So you have no buy-in. You really don't get a, a say. And these rules are applied to you as if, you know, if you had buy-in and if you were a member of Congress, like writing the law, it's, it's crazy. So I know the rulemaking process, it's so complicated. I mean, on, on so many different levels. Right. So the way this plays out, states can't comment. I mean, I mean, what does that look like? Are they completely left alone without having like an opportunity to say, oh my goodness, this is not the way we've been running this. And we, we see it in a different way. This is how we've been applying this law. And then they get this letter or this new rule has been passed. I, I'm sure that's, I mean, in a workplace that's entirely difficult to comply with. But not only that, I think on my end, my biggest question is, why don't states have a say in some of these processes? They're the ones who have to run, sometimes even fund part of some of these programs. Yeah, and it is a lot of these programs are state and federal partnerships. So you'd think that would be the process, but all states are relegated to is being able to submit a comment, you know, a Word document through a mm-hmm. web portal online mm-hmm. that just gets checked off by some, you know, yeah, twenty-four-year-old bureaucrat sitting in an office <laughs> down in Arlington. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you can say that because you know you lived there for a good. Yeah, long I did. While. I was that. I was that person a oh, long time goodness. ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Outside of that, so tell me some of the other tactics. I know one of them that you guys have highlighted a couple of times, and I'm the marketing director here at FGA. I mean, we write press releases, we talk to reporters, state newspapers, national newspapers and outlets. So this one really strikes me as, wow. Um, And and that's sending deceptive press releases to state newspapers. Um, What's behind that one? So they're very smart. The Biden administration and, and the left in general is very smart at trying to control the narrative early. And the first way they can do that is by creating a new, like we were just talked about this rulemaking process and then framing it so that there's only one way to interpret it. 
right? Issuing a press release with that narrative and suddenly that rule accomplishes only what exactly they're talking about. So an example of this would be, we're no longer permitting IDs on food stamp cards, right? They would frame that Mm -hmm. as like opening up access to millions of additional Americans that no longer have to be, have their picture on their EBT card and Mm -hmm. it deprives them of their rights, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's how they would frame a common sense measure of putting someone's photo on an EBT card. Mm -hmm. And they would send that out to the press before they notify the agencies that the rule's even final sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I can definitely see that being a problem because from there on, you know, everyone, everyone hears. It's almost like the first person to the the catch or to the finish line. Those are the talking points from from day one. And yeah, that's so crazy, but it is. You're right. It's It's, very deliberate. It's a smart move and it's deliberate, Mm -hmm. yes. So what's some of these other tactics that, you know, the administration uses against states and how they're kind of, in a way, they're being very smart. Yeah, this one follows off of the regulatory process. So they send out this thing called written guidance. The agency guidance that comes through in just, you know, these innocuous letters that go out to the states, it's a way for them to interpret the rules they just created. So if there's any ambiguity or if they think that a state like Florida or Texas is interpreting the rule differently than they want them to interpret, even if it's vague, they will then send guidance to those states saying, no, you're interpreting the rule wrong. Now, problem is there is no notice and comment or any type of feedback for that written guidance and that agency guidance. And what we're seeing, and it's it's really scary, Tori, the Trump administration actually created stronger safeguards around the agency guidance process. Okay. It said there was these rules that were crafted and he did an executive order that said, look, if an agency guidance letter that doesn't have any of this transparency, no notice in common, if an agency guidance letter has a certain dollar value and impact or is a substantial piece of policy guidance, it had to go through formal rulemaking and it had to go to the White House to get signed off on. Yeah, now, which, which makes sense. I right. mean, yeah. Well, it didn't make sense for Biden because he just he signed an executive order on his first week that undid that whole process. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing a, three agencies have already done it. They're undoing those rules that restricted them from just issuing these guidance letters. So now what it does is it creates an even more effective pathway for the Biden administration to tell states what to do without having to provide any notice or giving them an opportunity to comment. Yeah. And I know, you know, for our listeners out there, you know, when I was on the research team here at FGA, we did a lot on Obamacare enrollment and Medicaid enrollment. And and one of the ways these played out, and um, I know that our vice president of policy and research, Jonathan Ingram and I, we ended up writing a paper on this, which was there was some Obama era guidance that mm-hmm. kind of like produced a faulty eligibility pipeline. So, you know, states had interpreted eligibility requirements and the way they went about checking people's eligibility for Medicaid. And then all those verification steps were almost reneged just by lettered guidance that was sent out to states that said, you know, you should seek out and you should enroll ineligible individuals because they were also eligible for food stamps, all in the name of, you know, 
administrative efficiency. So it's efficiency over eligibility. You know, which one do you choose? But I do remember that being something that plays really big in, in the Medicaid program, and it did under Obama. And some of those things weren't even pulled back under the Trump administration either. But, you know, that causes state agencies to bypass some of those important enrollment procedures in, in some mm-hmm. of these programs, you know, without a formal rule or regulation. And it kind of leaves them in, in, in a tough spot. A real tough spot. And the whole goal there is just to force compliance. This is, mm-hmm. you know, in the first chapter of the Obama playbook on forcing compliance. And I mean, it really goes back to the Clinton administration, but they've been crafting this this technique and this method for a long time. Mm. So I know that, you know, there are proper channels, as, as we mentioned, you know, you have guidance, which which is technically a, a proper channel, but not nearly as stringent as the rulemaking or, or the regulation process. But then there are also just basic formal communication channels that people you know, expect to use if you have a problem with an agency or or something like that. So how are folks in the administration kind of getting around this whenever they have a problem with with a state or or with a specific state employee or maybe even the way they handle a program? Well, the like embedded federal agency careers that have been there for a decade or two decades, they know who their counterparts are in let's say they're overseeing a region, they know who their counterparts are and the people that they can trust and work with at the state level Mm -hmm. uh, in each state. Mm -hmm. So they usually try to open up direct pathways of communication to those folks that they know have no political bent in terms of who the current administration is, but they know wants to, let's say, increase Medicaid eligibility or, you know, there was a saying in Maine, for food stamps in the Office of Family Independence when we first got there was, when in doubt, give it out, right? So yeah. that, that yeah. mantra of when in doubt, give it out, they know who to call that thinks that way. Mm-hmm. And they can bypass those channels of who they're supposed to actually communicate with. Okay, okay. So in, in a way, it's almost just kind of like manipulating the system. Oh yeah, big yeah. time. Okay, yep. makes a lot of sense. So let's get into some of your examples. I mean, you used to work in state administration. Tell us exactly like how you, what state you worked in, what you were doing. But then, you know, I believe that was during the Obama years, mainly. How did some of this play out for you in the workplace? So I worked for, in the administration of Governor Paul LePage in Maine. And I started working there January 1st, 2013. And I was working at the Department of Health and Human Services as the senior legal policy advisor. And while I was there, I oversaw the fraud investigation and recovery unit for welfare benefits. So that was Medicaid, you know, which is like healthcare, food stamps, the cash welfare, you know, WIC, which is all mm-hmm. for women, infant, children. So all of those programs, we had a fraud team of 17 individuals that would investigate them. And for a time, they reported directly to me. But I just work with that team. I helped with a lot of the prosecutions and yeah. just tried to craft policies that helped support my boss, who was the commissioner, Mary Mayhew, support her agenda and the governor's agenda. So, you know, during the Obama years, it was crazy. They basically opposed everything we were trying to do to improve our state, to get people back to work, to lift people up by their bootstraps. And, mm-hmm. you know, the governor had a policy of a hand up 
not a handout. And it mm-hmm. was really too bad that the Obama administration did not share that approach. Yeah. So I'm a bit curious, uh, looking at some of these tactics that we already talked through, did you ever experience, you know, one of those spontaneous visits or, you know, a deceptive press <laughs> yeah. release? Yeah. So tell me about Absolutely. that. Tell me, tell me yeah. what you experienced. So it was it was funny, actually, myself and um, Nick Adolfson, who now works at FGA as well, we were at the office and we, we get a phone call that apparently there were two of those mid-level federal type employees headed to our Bangor main office to inspect and interrogate our employees about the new program we had rolled out. And as I mentioned earlier, the governor was very interested in program integrity for welfare programs. So Mm -hmm. one of the things we did was we started a pilot project to put photos on EBT cards to help Mm -hmm. serve as a deterrent to fraud. Because what we were finding was that there were uh, stacks of EBT cards showing up Mm -hmm. at drug busts. And so we wanted to create a deterrence for that. So anyways, these folks were headed up there and the governor, he does not play around. He said, if they go into that building, I'm shutting it down. So, oh my goodness. You know, we talked to him. We t- the commissioner talked with him, and mm-hmm. Nick and I got in the car and started driving to Bangor. And the idea was all right, let's just make sure we document what the federal uh, folks, the, the agency folks are trying to do. So, Nick and I came up with the idea that I would just take out my, my phone and I'd record them because yeah. there's no right to privacy, it's a public yeah. building. Like, I mean, you're a lawyer. You got to yeah. check all those boxes, right? Yeah, like, I checked okay, all the boxes. Pull out your yeah. phone. It's usually a smart thing. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? It it holds us accountable. It holds them accountable. Yes. Everyone can agree how things went. It's one of the so. big benefits of technology today. I mean, you you can always hit record, and it's very difficult to get around an audio or video recording for sure. Right. Right. Well, they were too pleased when we sat down across from them, and I pulled out my camera and started recording. It immediately sent them into a uh, change of plans. They were no longer going to interrogate our employees. They started being a lot more deferential. They, okay. Instead of barking orders at Nick and myself, they allowed us to say, look, we'll just walk you through how this process works. Mm-hmm. This is just one office, but by the way, in a month we're doing every office. We'll be doing this for everyone that is on the program. So... You know, it really stopped them in their tracks a little bit. But it's funny, they still, they can't get past that process of trying to manipulate state employees. So at one point, they tried to pull in the head of the office that they had, you know, they'd known this guy, I guess, for 15 years. Mm -hmm. They tried to pull Mm -hmm. him into a side room and slam the door on me. But yeah, yeah, I've had a lot of doors slammed on my foot uh, as a child <laughs> with five sisters. So, uh, oh man, you were I, I was okay with Your it. foot was ready. I was prepped. I was ready. I was ready, and um, I just was like, "That's just not going to happen, ma'am." And yeah, that shut that down as well. So yeah, well, it kind of reminds me of you know, like in Hamilton, there's like the room where it happens, right? You don't want that in so many different cases of right. people trying to almost like work around or, or kind of force people to do something. It needs to, there's, there's a reason why there's transparency in state agencies. There's a reason for it. So yeah, transparency is the best disinfectant. I believe that there's a lot of disinfecting that has to happen in state and federal government. So I'm all about it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So there are some ongoing court cases against some of these administrative moves, which happens, you know, 
almost constantly, no matter who's in the Oval Office, there's always going to be court cases from the right, from the left. So what are some of these ongoing court cases now against the Biden administration? Well, there's too many almost to list. We're tracking all of them. But some of the big ones right now that are especially relevant to FGA and our, our reforms, I would say the biggest one right now is the attorney general for Texas decided to sue the Biden administration because the Biden administration revoked a waiver for their Medicaid, which again, that's their, their state healthcare program, revoked their waiver for operating that program in the state. And I know that kind of sounds wonky and I can unpack that a little. So Texas wants to be able to operate their state healthcare program the way they want to do it. They wanted to allocate additional dollars towards individuals with substance abuse and mental health disorders and to provide more additional resources to them. Okay. The Trump administration signed off on that plan, which goes beyond what the law permits, and approved it for the next 10 years. The Biden administration, just because Trump had signed off on it, undid it through one of those agency guidance letters. And this is, this is a process that took thousands of hours and millions of dollars of you know, state resources and federal resources to hammer out an agreement to allow this waiver to be in process. And with the stroke of a pen, Biden undid all of that work. And frankly, he did it in a very illegal way. So the attorney general, Paxton for, for Texas, sued them in federal court in Texas. And it's not looking good for Biden. I'll tell you that right now. Okay. So let me get this straight. So Texas submitted a waiver. Do you remember what date that happened? You know, 2020, late 2020, probably. Um, yeah, the waiver The waiver was actually submitted in late 2020. Okay, okay. So it is May 2021 at this point. And, and practically, you know, Texans, they saw, hey, we've got this issue with the way we run our program. We really think it would be better run by doing this. It would better serve low-income Texans, especially right. those, you know, you mentioned disabilities, mental health, all of those things. And then it almost sounds like it was a political move to kind of cut back on Texas. And, and, and I do want to note for our listeners out there, Texas is one of the few states that are holdout states that have not expanded Medicaid. So that's also probably a really big factor into this conversation. So at this point in May, you, you said there's a lawsuit. What can Texas do against that? Their waiver was pulled. What, what options do they have? Well, and that, that's why it's in front of the judge now. They're, they're briefing the case. And if Texas wins, they would be permitted to have that waiver through 2030, basically. And as you said, they did not expand Medicaid and Biden wants every state to expand Medicaid. So if you provide services outside of the way that Biden wants you to provide them, they're going to come after you. And that's what they did here. And Texas is fighting back. So are there any other states that are maybe filing lawsuits or or have any other moves? I, I do believe I heard something was going on in Michigan a little bit ago. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, there's a lot of moving parts on lawsuits, but the biggest potential threatening lawsuit that could come down on Biden and the administration in general, I'd have to say, you know, it's it's a lot of reform areas outside of FGA's wheelhouse. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of stuff on immigration. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw that ICE is averaging one arrest a day nationwide. So they've basically been pulled back completely off their mandate. 
and then the Keystone X pipeline, they're yeah. suing on that because mm-hmm. Biden just basically killed 10,000 jobs mm-hmm. with the stroke of a pen. Mm-hmm. Again, all this stuff is done without any buy-in, no notice and comment, no transparency, and he's doing it illegally. And state Republican attorney generals are going to hold him accountable. Yeah, and and I mean, I know that there are a lot of state uh, certain Republican attorney generals, and in some of these states, maybe even in more purple states, there are states everywhere are experiencing this right now. And and Chase, so. Total honesty. What what's the goal here? Are are they trying to push for a policy? Are they in many cases? Is it is it a political move? What is it that kind of leads to this almost like a federal power grab in so many different ways? So I believe that the reason that there's such a big push here is they can see the writing on the wall that 2022 is going to be very bad for Democrats in the House and Senate and. With a divided Congress and executive, you know, and White House, the only option for Biden to do anything is through executive action, yeah, and mm-hmm. agency action, and so this is all kind of they're setting the groundwork to see like how far they can push. Okay, so if you look at what just happened in Arizona, the Arizona uh, Senate president wanted to do an audit of their election process, and they were going to go out and canvass voters and see like who they'd interacted with. Had people approached them, if they had participated in the ballot harvesting, you know, pretty simple questions. Biden got wind of that. And the Department of Justice, you know, Civil Rights Division, specifically the voting rights section, sent out a very threatening letter to them saying that they could be in violation of federal law. Mm-hmm. Now, they weren't actually violating a law. And they hadn't asked them for, you know, to, to provide them legal counsel. And yeah. they hadn't actually done anything yet. And arguably... That's for a judge to decide. But hmm. they said, if you do something like this, we'll probably, you know, throw the book at you. And they scared the Senate president and, and our, you know, all the people trying to just make sure they're having a decent and strong election process out of, you know, taking that canvassing action. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to see here in the next six months is by administration, if they can sense a weakness, they're going to push even harder and they're going to take even bigger steps. And as we saw, the budget just came out. Fiscal year 2022 budget, they're adding another $33 million to that voting rights section at the Civil Rights Division at the DOJ. Yeah. So it's it's all pretty scary stuff. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So we just finished up an episode. I, I was on there with Joe Horvath talking about unemployment and, and all of the things moving in that direction. America's getting back to normal people and states are taking action. So I saw that, you know, DOL, Biden's Department of Labor, they've been pushing states on PUA or pandemic unemployment assistance. What happened there? I mean, states are fighting back on that one. Absolutely. States and especially the conservative and Republican states have recognized that they want their people back to work and small businesses, you know, the engine that drives our entire economy need employees and people like to work. People want to work in this country. But if you create strong incentives not to work, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Biden's been pushing the pandemic unemployment assistance as much as possible to try to keep more people just bought in and off the, off the workforce roles and keep this narrative of this massive emergency going on as long as possible. And what states are doing and conservative states have done is they said, no, we don't want your money. Keep it. Actually, it's, it's pretty impressive. It's very rare to see states say, 
no, we don't want your money. But there was a lot of courage shown by these, the governors that have stood up and said, no, we don't want to participate in pandemic unemployment assistance for folks that, you know, are supposed to be looking for work and aren't, right? They shouldn't be receiving money. Well, and, you know, in, in many cases too, I mean, and we know this, you've got states whose unemployment rates are way down, well below pre-pandemic oh, situations. Yeah. And then you have states that are extraordinarily high. And so you get the national average, but that's not telling the full state-specific story. And and you're the one who's been traveling around the country too. You've lived in a variety of different places. You can tell there's a difference between DC right. and Texas and Arizona. And for me, Florida and Ohio and Texas yeah. and all these different places that we've been able to visit and travel to it's noticeable. There are differences in all of these different states. And for governors to be able to say, my state, we are doing well. We are getting back to normal. We've taken the right steps. We're going to opt out of some of these disincentives to work because we're we're back at it. I, I think that's a well, and Tori, courageous move. Why, why do you think that there's they're creating these disincentives to work, uh, that Biden's doing that? Well, I think, I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit. My personal opinion is you use use an emergency. It's almost like, you know, hey, we've got this cloud coverage over us. So we can make all of these different moves and cloud it under this one topic of the pandemic. So much flies under the term pandemic. You can kind of like <laughs> yeah. get, a, you can kind of get away with, with a lot of things by just saying like, oh, it's COVID protections. I mean, we've, we've seen this with our, our Zuckerbucks project and, and we just started yeah. working on elections this year, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg and his Chan Zuckerberg and them giving money to state election offices through grant programs, through CTCL. I think all a lot, a lot of that stems from saying, you know, we, we want to use this money to provide hand sanitizers and PPE stuff, just helping people with COVID get to the ballot box. Right. Great idea, right? That's not actually what happened. You know, in Georgia, we just released a Georgia Zuckerberg's paper very recently, and it it kind of states, you know, they used 1.3%, I think, of all the money, all the grant money actually went towards PPE, and the rest of it went to, you know, get out the vote efforts, and a lot of it to Democrat counties, heavily Democrat counties. So it's stuff like that that, you know, you can say and come in and say, you know, we're doing this under the guise of pandemic or if right. this is what we're doing it for. But then when you look at the facts, you look at reality, that's what gets brought in underneath that guy. So in my in, in my personal opinion, I, I think that's probably a big portion of it is we can get a lot done here that we couldn't get done. That's part of their, the Biden administration agenda that says like, you know, we're going to push this through all in the name of emergency powers or under the pandemic. So the longer they can continue talking about the pandemic, you know, they're going the to. longer they're going to push <laughs> yeah. these states and, and they're going to use that because it gives them a lot of control. And, and truthfully, I, I don't blame them. It, it's a pretty smart move. So, but I will say this outside of the court systems, outside of all of those different things we already talked about. I mean, we already had states opting out of federal money. Is there any other way that, that states can fight back that you want to mention or, or even give kudos to some of these states that you've seen make some smart moves? I think the best way they can, that states can really operate is to just keep succeeding, keep their states open, keep creating incentives for small business owners to start new businesses, to expand their businesses, to create higher paying jobs and 
really stimulate the economy. And you know, the the fastest way out of it, out of poverty is a paycheck. And the more we can have incentives that you know, job creators and owners of small businesses, honestly, it's going to create a better economy for everyone. So I think that that's the best way to stand up outside of these bureaucratic and you know sometimes legal methods. But you know, we've seen Florida governor, Texas governor. A lot of these conservative governors have just stood up and said, enough is enough. We're going to go back to the way it was and we're going to be better than ever. And it's really exciting to see that. Yeah. And I think all of us are just excited to see what the end of 2021 brings, what the election of 2022 brings. And we're just ready to get back on that right track. And Can't wait. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, Chase, for joining us today on Built to Win. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back here on the show. But thanks so much for joining us. And for all of our listeners out there, thank you for listening in today. Once again, I'm your host, Victoria Erdley. Tune in next time on Built to Win. Thank you for listening to Built to Win, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the Foundation for Government Accountability, a nonprofit organization helping millions achieve the American dream. To learn more about our work or our experts, visit www.thefga.org. And tell us what you think on Twitter at Built to Win Podcast. Views and opinions expressed by guests on Built to Win do not necessarily reflect the official position of the Foundation for Government Accountability and are not intended to advocate for or against the passage of any legislation or ballot initiative or to support or oppose any candidate for elected office. 